When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I will, um, I'll have a hit or two of weed. Mm-hmm. And then I watch, this is so weird. Right now I'm really into, um, uh, interrogation videos for like, <laughs> yeah like police stuff sure i, I i'm it's fascinating what people do and say when they're on the spot I, yeah. I think that's it like i just because i i've always had this uh allergy to to being in trouble sure mm-hmm. that like it's just i don't know it, it, it i i love just watching see what people who are in incredible trouble do that's great you know, like like the the quick thinking they yeah, have yeah, to do, yeah. like yeah. Uh, it's I don't know, it's fascinating to me. So I don't know what it says about me. <laughs> in my life, I hope I lie and tell everyone you were a good wife, and I hope you die. I hope we both die. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your host, Pepper. I am joined as always by Kevin McCracken. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. As I said, I'm in my office, which is rare these days. And our guest on the show is John Worcester, which has me like really excited uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, not to mention Super Chunk, Mountain Goats, Bob Mould, but uh, John, you've played for two of my all-time favorite bands ever, which are Rocket from the Crypt and Guided by Voices. Oh. Um, yeah. I mean, like, really, like, crazy fan. Like, make my wife go with me to see Rocket whenever they're Oh, wow. <laughs> scream along. Um, Kevin, and- who are we just talking to that was talking about the Rocket from the Crypt, Craig Kilborn uh, uh, fiasco? Rich Egan. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yep. So he, I think he was doing some work with them at that time. But, you know, so I just, you know, I really want to just start this off with, you know, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's a, like, honor to have you here. And, you know, given your resume and your history, especially uh, in music, but also writing and, and your comedy work and your voice and, and sort of on-screen acting, I mean, I kind of got to ask before we get too far into it, like, what in this lifetime do you actually aspire to at this point? Like, what's your what would be your ultimate thing? I mean, you've that's a that's a that's a question I ask myself often. Um, <laughs> I it's it's such a weird thing to say, but I kind of did what I hoped I'd do already. Like when I was a kid, I sort of you know I had these dreams of pretty much doing what I've been doing. So I have no complaints, but I also I also ask myself that like, what do I do? What do I want to do next? Yeah. And I, I guess it's just kind of keeping doing what I what I'm doing. And uh I got so lucky that, you know, I fell in with all these bands and I met Tom Sharpling and we found our way in the back door of, of the comedy world. And uh 
Um, so I, I don't know what's next. I'd like to just keep doing what I'm doing and seeing if any other doors open, which they usually do. It's really interesting. Like I'll, out of the blue, I'll get a, you know, an offer to, to be in like a TV show or something, right? Play on, nice. play on a record, and I love stuff like that. I love the things that just kind of come out of nowhere. Gosh, and, I want to um, Chris Farley this interview so fast right now, but <laughs> instead, you mentioned that as a kid, you know, you're pretty much doing everything you wanted to do. I would like to learn a little more about what that kid was like. Like, what kind of kid were you? Were you an inside kid, outside kid? Lots of friends, no friends. Both. I um, I had a lot of friends. Um, in school early on, but I, I had a very rich um, uh, uh, inner fantasy world also, which I guess a lot of kids do. Um, so you know, my my fantasy was you know was always to to play music and be in a band and stuff. And and did uh, you like music when you were young? Yeah, yeah, I um. The first concert I ever saw, and it, and it honestly didn't make a huge impression, but um, it's still my first concert, was The Carpenters when I was... Um, oh, wow. When I was, I think, <laughs> five, six, maybe, five or six. Uh, yeah, six. It was 1972 uh, at the Allentown Fairgrounds in, in Allentown, PA. And um, I just loved... I, I loved watching drummers. You know, I just... Because... A drum kit is almost like a like a hot rod, you know. I mean, to a sure. to a child, yeah. it's like a thing. Like it's yeah. it's like a spaceship almost. So it's very yeah. it's very impressive uh, optically. You, you almost get in it. <laughs> yes, in, in. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I loved, I just loved watching drums and the drummer and and that sort of thing on American Bandstand or whoever was on TV, and um, that was what I I just. I, I think it really caught my eye and my ears when I was around 10 or so. And, and my, my parents got me a, a, a little drum kit uh, when I was 12. <laughs> I started taking lessons when I was 10, just for like six months, but it was so unsatisfying. You know, you get a little drum pad and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's it really. So it's mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't, this isn't drumming. Sure. And so um, I, I, I was really into sports too early on, like uh, until I played baseball and football and, and things like that uh, track. But then when I was 14, I got in my first band uh, mm. and that was called Hair Club for Men. So <laughs> this is, this is the, uh, 1981 uh-huh. and uh, the, the bass player was uh, a couple grades higher than me uh, and he played bass. So I, I was just... I was a ninth grader in junior high school and he was already in high school. His name was Steve Grass. He was a friend of my brother's and the other two guys were adults. The the other bass player, because you have to have two bass players, one to, <laughs> one to play fuzz and one to play regular. Okay. Uh, and so uh, he was 28. He was like a real man. Uh, and the singer was an adult too. So it was a very odd mix of people. And, you know, I, uh, did you play shows? We played, uh, in uh, local VFW halls. Yeah. We didn't play. I was too young to get into, into a club, so we sure. didn't do a- anything like that. So so that's kind of, you know, it, uh, where I was as a kid. And I had friends who were, who also liked music. Um, but, you know, my tastes were pretty, pretty out there. Um, you know, by the time I was like 13 or so, I loved 
I loved the the Clash and the Ramones mm-hmm. and the Police and that sort of stuff. And I, I grew up in like a like a small farm town uh, about okay. 30, 35 miles outside of Philly. So not a lot of punk rockers or new wave aficionados. So um, yeah. Um, Were you watching a lot of uh, TV too? Like, where did the comedy come from? Did oh, you yeah. watch SNL and stuff like that? La, uh, my favorite was Second City TV. Oh yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. That was my favorite, and that's what that's what Tom and Sharpling and I really bonded over. We lo- we loved that, and you know, to this day, it's we still talk about it all the time. And just mm-hmm. you know, it was such a formative thing because the um, the those early SCTV sketches or bits they're really long like there there's there's not a lot of payoff right. in, in 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 quite a few of them until you know something major happens so that's what a lot of our, of our our best show work yeah. has been like it's a slow simmer and then finally something funny happens you know several minutes in so i, sure, I, I think sure. we both kind of kind of uh you know we're, we're influenced by by that approach to comedy it's funny, and you're, and you're willing to to say the audience needs to be a little more patient, or needs to invest a tiny bit more than. Oh like, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and our 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 first uh, several years on the show, people were very uh, not upset about it, but like they were like they wanted instantaneous uh, sure, com- yeah. comedy comedy gold, yeah. you know, and it, it, it took it takes us a while to. Laughs per minute, laughs per minute. Instant gratification in the United States of America. Oh, yes. (laughs) It's funny because uh, the same guy that introduced me to the Dead Kennedys introduced me to SCTV when I was in junior high. And and, um, I always thought SCTV was sort of the the thinking man's comedy or the thinking person's comedy. And then they they shortened it up for Saturday Night Live to make it more sort of accessible. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's funny. I, so you, it, I just want to go back to the younger you because you grew up in a small town, right? Like you weren't yes. in like a major metropolitan area. Um, not where I lived. I lived, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere, but we, you know, we're getting, um, all the Philadelphia radio stations and, and TV. So I was definitely aware of what was happening. It just wasn't, it was nowhere near my fingertips, you know, at, at that age. So how, how did that kind of develop? Because you were, I mean, you and I are pretty close to the same age. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm 52 or I will be in a month. And, yeah. um, you know, I know I lived in a pretty small town that, that Pepper lived in as well. Um, but, and it, we had to like mail order everything and it was just like a process, you know, there wasn't like that. We had a great record store. I will say that a record store was probably one of the best record stores still that I've ever been to. Oh, wow. But, but Where's um, this? Santa Rosa, California. So oh, okay. up, up north, um, uh, up north, 45 of minutes north of San Francisco, yeah. oh, okay. but, but it's a, it was, you know, it was a small place. So how, how did the, kind of all this, uh, you know, and I don't want to call it like alternative, but kind of, you know, like punk and different musics and the comedy, like, where did you get those influences from? I'm, I'm just, I'm really curious about that. Well, um, I was just, re- you know, I, I would read a lot of, of, of these music magazines as a kid, uh, like mm. cream and, uh, a great one called Rock Scene that was out, mm-hmm. out of New York in the in the mid to late seventies, and that's kind of where I, I found out about punk. And at that point, it's funny that, that there's a uh, a documentary uh, on Kurt Cobain that's based on these interviews that Michael Azarad did with him, and mm-hmm. um, I can't remember what it's called, but he um, Kurt in there says pretty much what 
what, what my experience was where I would get these magazines that had punk rock in them, but I had no access to hearing the punk rock. <laughs> so I just kind of like had to make up my own little version of what I thought it was, you know, nice. and then finally, finally a friend lent me the first Ramones album and, and I loved it. And um, there was a great syndicated TV show uh, that we got uh, in Philly called um, God, what the fuck was it called? It was called uh, rock world. It, it, okay. it was a Canadian show called rock world. And so huh. we're talking, we're talking 80, 81 and they would have videos by the clash and the Ramones and the police oh, wow. and, and bands like that. So it was like, Oh my God, this is, this is, this is what I love. So mm-hmm. I was, I was lucky that 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 music really just spoke to me and connected with me. And, um, you know, I, I just loved it. And, um, so that's how I got into that, but I, I still lived very far from a record store, you know, like I, I sure. couldn't, I would have to, my dad would take me or <laughs> awesome. you know, my mother would take me and I would go yeah. buy. I remember the, the first money I, I ever made playing music, um, hair club for men had a, had a show at a, at a VFW and I think I made like $60, which was a lot nice. of money for a kid. Oh, yeah. And I spent mm-hmm. it all on records. I remember buying <laughs> uh, the Heartbreakers live record at Max's, uh, Iggy Pop t- live TVI, um, a, a few other things, uh, Plasmatics, New Hope for the Wretched. Um, so, yeah, I, I just loved all that stuff. And, and, and it, it uh, but it, it really kind of, drove a wedge between me and and my best friends mm. when I was 13 or 14, they weren't mm-hmm. into that stuff at all. And, mm. and they really kind of stopped wanting to hang out with me after that it was very interesting. You were too, uh, getting too weird. I guess so. Yeah. Or just, you know, they, they were getting into pills and things. Like oh, okay. Yeah. Things that oh. I, did, I didn't approve of. Sure. Sure. <laughs> how did you, uh, how'd you get out of that town? Um, well, um, I was really lucky that, I'll try to make this as short as possible. Um, a band that would open for Hair Club for Men at the time, so 81 or so, was a band called Narthex. And uh, it was a duo who were from near us. And the drummer was a guy named Dean. And Dean went on to be Dean Clean, the drummer in the Dead Milkmen. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Dean didn't live super far from me. I mean, like it, it was a drive. But he would he would let me come over and and hang out with, him and the dead milkman when they practiced in his basement. Oh, so, that's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I owe so much to those it. guys for just kind of let me hang out with them. Sure. And, um, and so, um, now, now I'm like 16 or 17. And so I'm getting to kind of hang out with them and go into Philly and go to shows with them too. So, nice. so they would take me in to see who, who all these great bands, you know, government issue, uh, minor threat, uh, wow. uh, who else did we see? The UK subs. Wow. Circle jerks. So all, all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, how I mean, old were I, you at this time? Uh, I still wasn't driving yet. So I was probably 16. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so that was really, those guys were a, a very important, you know, thing for my, my formative years. Absolutely. Cool. Well, so talking Wait, about- so that got you out of the town. That got me into the city, at least. And, yeah. and, through, and through that, I met a couple of friends of theirs 
yeah. who were looking for a drummer, and that band was called Psychotic Norman. Oh, you drummed your way out of town. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> but but so so I joined this band called Psychotic Norman, and now we're talking 1980. God, I must have just graduated high school, so it was 84. I remember I I graduated on a Friday, and I started work at a toothpaste uh, toothpaste packaging plant factory on Monday. Like, so I had no, I had no, like, you know, sure. why, why I didn't have a wild weekend. Uh, <laughs> and it was the night shift too. So I started wow. in at midnight. Here's real life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So no, no plan to go to college at all. I did end up going to a recording engineering school uh, oh, cool. in Ohio in the summer of 85. Um, and so was that helpful for you? The, the, Absolutely. In, yeah. in that, that it made me realize I liked playing more than I liked being on the other side of it. Right. Sure. So right. I, I, I had plans to maybe be a, an engineer or something, but sure. I realized I like playing more than, yeah. than that. Yeah. I'm so glad I went because it, it gave me a little bit of, you know, know-how. Sure. Um, so through the Dead Milkman, I meet the Psychotic Norman guys, and we made a single that came out it barely came out. I quit. I left the band before it came out, but we, we had some, had some good gigs, uh, for about a year. Uh, so we're talking like 80, 84, 85. We opened for the Minutemen a couple months. Before oh, wow. Nice. D Boone died. Uh, that was amazing. Um, this is Philly. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Detroit's in great band from Milwaukee, uh, yeah. suicidal tendencies, <laughs> stuff wow. like that. So, um, that was yeah. really fun to play those shows. But, but so we uh, had a little problem with our, our bass player. Our bass player was an incredible bass player, but couldn't always be relied upon. And, and we practice at his house. That's why you need two. Exactly. Yeah. So this is, this is not hair club anymore. This is psychotic Norman. <laughs> sure. One, one bass player, but we practice at his house and we played a gig at a frat house on a Friday night. So now we're talking January of 85 and we practice every Tuesday and Sunday and it's Sunday mm. and I go to his house. It was quite a drive too, for me. I was still up in the farmlands and, we, and we'd practice uh, right outside of Philly in upper Derby. Sure. And uh, he doesn't show up at his oh, own man. house for, for practice. <laughs> and that the night before my brother who was living in Winston Salem, North Carolina on a track scholarship, um, he calls and says, I met this band and they're looking for a drummer. And I was so kind of annoyed by the, by the bass player not yeah. showing up in his own house that, that I got home that night and I, and my mom knew about this too. She goes, you know, your, your brother called again. And I said, <laughs> I think, I think I'm going to do it. And so I called my brother. He gave me all the info and it was a band who, who, whose record I had sent away for, in my last year of high school, they were called oh, the wow. Right Profile. They, they were like a jangle, jangle rock band from North Carolina. And I loved all that Mitch Easter produced power, you know, uh, pop stuff. Sure. REM, DBs, Let's Active. Yeah. And um, so I end up, my dad gives me money for a flight on Piedmont Airlines. And, and Piedmont I, I, Airlines. I go down and I audition and I got in the band somehow. Wow. Uh, and, what was and, the band called? They were called the right profile. Never put a record out. But wait a minute, hold on. There, there's some trivia in this one, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'll let you just tell it because I, I'm a fan of this man that you're going to mention. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so um, the band consisted of uh, of 
a bass player, Tim, a guitar player, <laughs> Jeff, and this other guy who played guitar and keyboards, an accordion named Stephen J. Dubner. And Stephen would go on to great uh, fame and success as a co-writer of the Freakonomics. Books. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, I'm not going to hold up my phone for proof or anything, but I subscribe uh, to his podcast. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was on his podcast once and the, the topic was quitting. <laughs> and, and so we, we talked about his quitting, which we never really discussed, you know, for probably 20 years. Amazing. Um, so um, I, I get in the band and I, I move from Harleysville, PA, down, down to Winston-Salem. And I'm, I'm 19 and I'm in a band now. And we get signed by Clive Davis to wow. Arista Records about four months later. Amazing. Which is crazy. Like I'm, I'm in a toothpaste packaging plant one night and then within the year I, sure. I, I'm, I'm in Clive Davis's office signing a record contract. It was so bizarre. And then that went to shit pretty much immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and um, <laughs> but we did start a, a, a record with uh, with Jim Dickinson. Okay. Uh, and he had just produced uh, Please to Meet Me by The Replacements. And so that was incredible. That was an incredible experience. Uh, what, what an amazing person to get hooked up with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would, record it, is just. Cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, and we classic. did it right where they did it, too. And yeah. there, there was vomit stain still on the wall from when they <laughs> threw up. And it was great. That's amazing. So when um, you got up there, you're 19 years old. I mean, like, was that the point at which you were just like, I'm just doing this? Like, I'm like, fuck it. Well, I'm in. I had no other. Pl- I think my my book might be called No Plan B, because um, there wasn't. There was no Plan B. I, I, I and it never entered my mind that this wouldn't happen. And I was so whatever naive. Well, I, I remember when I was like fifteen or or something, or even younger, saying, "If I don't make it by the time I'm twenty, like I don't know what I'm going to do." And I signed this record contract at 19. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but I, I was lucky to get all my horrific music dues paid pretty early on. Like basically we get signed and we just spent forever submitting demos of songs and they were, they didn't hear a, hit, a single and they were sending us no lie and out, outtakes from slippery when wet. Uh, <laughs> A song called You're Not My Lover, But You Were Last Night. Wow. Um, and we were like a roots rock band. Like we sounded kind of like Exile on Main Street Stones meets, oh, okay. meets yeah. Please to Meet Me, sort of. That yeah. kind of thing. And, and yeah. the band. Uh, so it was not, that was not our scene. And um, long story short, we ended up getting dropped. Uh, really tough times, you know, poverty. And... Uh, so we get dropped in like 90, I think, mm-hmm. and we sign a publishing deal. And this woman who signed us to our publishing deal wants to get us in the studio with Steve Jordan. And okay. Steve Jordan is um, he, right now he's on the road on the drums with with the Rolling Stones. Oh, OK. And uh, he was the drummer in David Letterman's band for years and uh, produced a Soul Asylum record, John Mayer. And uh, so he's, he's starting to become a record producer now. And she, our, our A&R person wants us to record with him. And so we end up doing it. We go, 
up to New York and we get out of the car and the first person we see as we get out of the car is Stephen J. Dubner. Oh, you got to be kidding me. I swear. And I don't even think we saw him at first because he looked like a businessman. I think he he even had like galoshes on. And we hear this voice go, hey, fellas. And it's him just (laughs) on the street. It was so bizarre. Anyway, so we end up recording with Steve Jordan just for like four days. And it was the most important four days of my musical life. He was just. How so? Oh, he was just amazing. He, I just, I, you know, he, he never showed me what to do or how to do anything. We basically would go to his apartment and, and, and kind of play around. And he had a little drum kit there and some amps and it's like two in the morning and he owned the whole floor. So no one was mm-hmm. complaining. He probably still lives there too. And, uh, um, just to get a feel for the songs and, and yeah, yeah. And huh. I don't, I don't recall him ever even sitting down at the drum kit. So right. I would just kind of soak up whatever his vibe was. Right. And then we went into the studio, this great place called the hit factory where a lot, I think where I think like the river and you know, b- big records like that were done. Sure. And, and uh, so he's producing and this guy, Nico Bolas is, is the engineer. Nico had just done Neil Young's freedom album. Okay. And um, have you ever seen this, this, clip of neil young on snl doing rocking in the free world it's the greatest uh, thing ever no. it's insane it's steve jordan on drums charlie drayton who's now bob dylan's drummer on bass uh, poncho from crazy horse on guitar and neil it's like punk rock and oh wow so we we recorded with steve probably just a month after that and i got to use that drum kit it's, oh, a, wow. it's, it's just amazing vintage drum kit. And it was just this magical experience recording with him. It's like, it was crazy. And, and the Berlin wall was coming down that week. So it was oh like, it was like everything at once. And then I got done my stuff and Joe Strummer was playing at the Palladium. Uh, <laughs> that I think it was a Saturday night. So I'm all, I'm done finally. And I had no money. Like I really had like $5 probably. Sure. And I'm an adult. Yeah, and, I get it. And, and so I'm talking to Steve and I go, man, I'd love, love to see Joe Strummer. I wasn't fishing or anything. And he goes into his wallet and he gives me like 30 bucks. Nice. And he goes, go. And so I, I took a, the subway down to the Palladium and I saw Joe Strummer. I like, I was second row. Yeah. Incredible. It was, it was yeah. better than when I saw the clash. Wow. And uh, Xander Schloss from the Circle Jerks on guitar, Jack Irons from Pearl Jam. Chili Peppers on drums. Uh, Lonnie Marshall, guy playing a only guy I've ever seen play a Steinberger bass that wasn't awful. <laughs> Shirtless. Wow. So good. Anyway, so I guess I bring that up because it was that week was just like I'd love to see like what my astrological stuff was was going on right. that week because it was like sure. <laughs> yeah. so um nothing came of 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 this recording session other than it being such a, a huge event in my life. Like we never had a record deal. We ended up kind of, uh, we did a final death March tour <laughs> out to, uh, out to LA in, in the su- late summer of 91. And I, 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 at this point I'm a window washer here in Chapel Hill. I moved <laughs> to Chapel Hill where my brother lives. And, uh, so now it's late summer of, of 91. We get back. I, I have $2 to my name now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
and I go visit my brother. My brother at this point is a, um, he's an album cover designer for oh, wow. local, lo- local bands here in Chapel Hill. And he goes, Hey, Mac from super chunk called. And I was like, please. Need <laughs> and he did. And, and uh, so by chance I was the, the window washer at, uh, at school kids records where Mac worked. Oh. And, and so I go in and we talk a little bit and he said, basically they're having a issue with their drummer and they're going to go out on this tour with mud honey. Oh, in a few weeks, they're going to see how it goes. and But in the event it doesn't go well, would you want to play drums? So he gave me a copy of, of what was going to be their, their next album called um, No Pocky for Kitty. And so I'm, I, you know, they go on the tour and I'm doing my window washing and I'm listening to the record all day long. And I loved it. It was really great. And um, came, uh, they came back and they played the release show for... Uh, no Pocky at the Cat's Cradle. And they were really good. Like, like they were so much better than when I last saw them because mm-hmm. they've been touring a lot. And uh, it turned out it, it wasn't working with, with the drummer. And so I remember going to see, <laughs> going to see um, Nirvana. Nirvana played at the Cat's Cradle. Oh, rad. And I went there. And I don't even know if I'd met Jim, the guitar player, by this point. I'd met Laura at a Danzig show at the Cradles uh, not much <laughs> earlier. And um, so my memory is that was kind of the night where it was like, I think you're, you're going to be in the band. Okay. And I, I saw seven Nirvana songs and thought that was okay and left. <laughs> On the Nevermind tour. So, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, when yeah. they kept upping the size of the venues that, you know. Oh, it was a crazy night. I remember go- going going there earlier that night to to visit with some friends of mine who were in the opening band. They were called Das Damen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember going in and it was just such a bizarre feeling. It was total dead silence. Each guy from Nirvana was in a corner of, of the cat's cradle doing, doing an interview like with different yeah. people. And uh, you could just sort of tell something was happening. Uh-huh. It was it was pretty interesting. And then, so I joined Superchunk. Our first tour, we we uh, we played a show in Bloomington, Indiana, and we go in the venue for sound, you know, to to load in. And there's this frat band, like these guys were frat guys, oh, wow. capital F, yeah. and they're playing Teen Spirit. Oh wow! Like that's where they practiced. And I was like, okay, this is this this is changing. Yeah, it's a thing. A when lot. I was in high school, there was a talent show, and the band that won was a bunch of frat boys playing Teen Spirit. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. wild. Like somehow it, it was like it was it was pro and metal enough. Yeah, to uh, to attract those guys. It, it was mm-hmm. so crazy. I mean, when I when that album came out, I lived in Santa Rosa, but we had a lot of connections to the Pacific Northwest at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, playing in hardcore bands, and we would go up there and play, and we. A friend of mine, like I used to book all of Slim Moon's bands when they would mm. come down, you know, because because mm-hmm. no one else would book them. And we had this studio that we could do shows in and this small space. And I mean, who the hell was doing shows for like, you know, Kill Rockstars and K Records at that point? You know, right. I mean, in Santa Rosa, California, of all places. Yeah. So we got a pre-release copy of that record. And we, like, I remember listening to a party and all of us are looking at each other going like, these guys are no longer going to be a band we're going to go see at Gilman street or, you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the record was so polished and so good. 
Yeah. And and it really is a good record. I mean, every I song. Mean, I can, yeah. I can, I can laugh about it now and the frat boy shit, but it's, I mean, that, that record was, you know, it was, it was amazing. And, yeah. and uh, it's just funny to hear the, cause I, I kind of forget about that time. I try to actually block it out right. <laughs> a little bit. Cause I was one of those like, don't sign to a major label guys, you know? And um, yeah, you were and, <laughs> hardcore, and, hardcore. And, uh, but I just, it's, it's interesting hearing other people's like versions of what was going on then, you know? And I just want to kind of call that out. It's like, it's really, it was an amazing time in music really. Oh yeah. No, yeah. it was like, you know, for for me, ha- having been through that major label, you know, uh, disaster is too heavy a word, but it, it sucked. It was not yeah. fun. It was not right. good. It didn't get anywhere. Um, to go into this world where, oh, yeah, you can put your own records out. Yeah. Like Psychotic yeah. Norman did, you know, yeah. and, and uh, it was so great because it was like, oh, yeah, you can just go on tour. Now, you don't have to you don't have to submit demos to anybody. You don't have to do any of this stuff. You just you just do it. And. That was so great. And, I, and, and like I said earlier, I was so glad I had these, I had this terrible experience first, mm-hmm. you know, cause mm-hmm. it really made me appreciate everything that came after. Cause the brass ring was no longer the brass ring anymore. No, right. Yeah. No. And, and, and we, I'd already been on a major, so I knew that it had 90%, you know, chance of, of, of being awful. And for mm-hmm. 90% of those bands that signed it probably was, except for they, if they were smart, like, whoever all yeah. they bought a recording studio, you know, mm-hmm. that they're still using now. Yeah. Um, but oh, wow. I don't think, I think that's, that's a, that those stories are probably few and far between. Sure. Yeah. Most of the you people know? like either didn't, they basically got that advance and never saw another penny and blew it. Yep. Um, and you know, and I think, you know, I'm standing here, I've got the jawbreaker poster behind me. They're a great example. I mean, they just, you know, oh, until, yeah. until the recent comeback, you know, they had that disastrous, you know, and Adam used to say, you know, you know, basically it's the, it's the, it's the same old story, you know, poor guy gets rich and then he gets poor again, you know? Yep. <laughs> and uh, so that's what a lot of bands went through during that time. I mean, how amazing is it though, that you were the window washer at the, <laughs> at where Mac was working at the time and kind of what that ended up being for all of you guys. Cause that band, like their trajectory after you joined, like completely changed. I mean, the records after, you know, after that the record that you didn't record, which was, I guess, no pocket. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, they're just, they're amazing. They're amazing records. I mean, w- one after another. And I mean, I've seen, I saw super chunk play at, at smaller venues. And then I saw you guys play at like treasure Island music festival out here. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, it's just like to see that band who I, I always appreciate bands that are super talented, really good musicians, but also play music that's accessible. Because, you know, I mean, you can be a good musician and play stuff that's just like, it's so mind-blowingly hard to listen to that, you know, it just sucks, quite honestly. But, it, you know, you guys are all super talented, and it, but it comes together in such an amazing way. And, I mean, I guess kind of delve in a little bit about all, uh, you know, about Super Chunk and how that's kind of shaped your, your other bands. Because now you've not, after that, it was just like it was on. Right. I, I, I was really lucky that I, that I had... Um experience in a couple different worlds. Like I, I was, I loved punk rock. So when I joined super chunk, I could, you know, I could talk about that and I could, I could play that pretty well. But when, um, you know, when I would get asked to play with other people, I also had that right profile roots, rock, whatever trad stuff in my bones too. So I was able to kind of, I was able to do, 
maybe more things than someone that was just one, you know, had, had one, one wheelhouse, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, I was really lucky with that where, you know, over the years I've gotten to rec- record or play with, you know, so many, it's, I can't believe it. You know, yeah. Nick, Cave, Nick Cave guided by voices and, wow. um, REM and new pornographers and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's, it's, uh, I love it. It's what I, I, I was hoping I'd be able to do. I was hoping I would be able to like be in a band, have that be kind of the mothership and then do, do whatever You use the word, John, you use the word lucky a lot and luck a lot. But I think you're a really humble person because obviously you were practicing drums in there somewhere. And obviously you're someone that shows up for band practice on time and things like <laughs> that. And you seem, you don't put on airs when you talk. So I think, it's not just luck, right? It's like you, you worked really hard and, and, and that's, that's part of it. You were available. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I worked really hard, but I was also like, I, so many times I was just in the right building at the right time. Like this, this Nick Cave thing I mentioned, I I was out, I was out in, um, in LA, uh, Fred Armisen and Bill Hader asked me to, to be in this show called uh, Documentary Now. I love that show. Yeah, so oh, we're much. talking about I'm that just, show. I'm, not, I'm just oh. not. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So <laughs> it, it was a spoof of Stop Making Sense, the Talk right. Head song, <laughs> and they did a fantastic job. It looks just like it. It's so and, good. Um, so I'm the drummer in, in, in their band, and um, so we uh, we went out to the valley to shoot the the concert, and and you do it twice. And uh, so we did it once. And then d- during the break, Hal Wilner, the great, uh, you know, music supervisor, producer from SNL, et cetera. He, he was he had a speaking role in, in the show that unfortunately didn't make it in the final cut, but he was great. And um, he comes up to me and I'd never met him before. And he goes, what are you doing tomorrow? And, and I said, um, well, I'm flying home to North Carolina. And he goes, would you, you know, would you wait? And I said, yeah, what's, what's happening? And he said, I'm producing this session tomorrow at, at um, a village recorder where, you know, the, the Steely Dan records were done. And I think some stone stuff was done there. And um, I said, oh, who, who's, who, who are you producing? And he goes, Nick Cave, Courtney Love, and uh, Maria McKee, who was in this <laughs> great band called uh, Lone Justice. And I said, oh, no, yes. Maybe. And uh, it, it was, the, it, it was a, a T-Rex covers for, for this T-Rex. Uh, what? I think it's going to be a documentary about Mark Bolin. The, the album already came out. The album came out maybe a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so I go to the studio and it happened and we did it. And it was like, he came in the room and it's like, oh my God. Like that's like, <laughs> yeah. El- that that was probably the most Elvis moment I've ever had where, oh my God, he's, those are the pants he wears. That's it. Like, just like, yeah. Do you keep it pretty cool? Oh Yeah. 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 And, and, and I kept it extra cool because my memory is it was almost the year anniversary of his first son's death. Oh, wow. So I, I, you know, I just thought his guy's probably in a, and he was like, you could tell he was still, he was still, you know, recovering from that. And, uh, yeah. but it was like, plays the piano. That's him sings just like the voices there. It's just crazy. You just can't believe you're in the same room as it. Um, so and, you are, you really are the Forrest Gump of, I of, guess. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, then, and then like, this is crazy too. I, um, I, I was kind of friendly with this guy named James Walburn, who's the guitar player in the pretenders. 
and has been in there for, for a long time. And um, I didn't know him super well, but but he invited me to come see the Pretenders down in, in uh, South Carolina. This is about probably five or six years ago. And I go down and because it's the middle of nowhere, I'm the only person on the guest list. And so <laughs> I get to go back and I'd never met Chrissy or Martin and they were so cool. They're really funny. And maybe three months later, James reaches out about, would you want to play in, in the, in the band for this one-off show that we're doing in uh, Western Massachusetts, nah. it was like a, a private gig. It's like, yes. <laughs> and so Jason Narducci and I from the, from the Bob Mole band and super chunk, we got to be in the pretenders for a night wow. and, and we played oh all God. the songs you wanted. It was just amazing. And she was so great. And how do you prep for that? I, the most I've ever rehearsed for anything mm, because mm-hmm. I wanted it to be yeah. great. You put headphones and on and just play along to yes, their songs. Yeah. All day, yeah. every day. And, okay. and there it is. <laughs> and this is a, this is a great lesson. If there are any players out there, um, my huge fear was that I was going to lose, lose the beat on tattooed love boys, which is this, you know, the song that's mm-hmm. on the first album. And it's, it's got, it's got like a, it, it turns over. Like it's, it's like, whatever four bars of eight and then a seven in there so it's Ooh. you got to count which is which i'm not i take great offense when when someone brings in a song that does that <laughs> sure but i was lucky that the the one song that i love that that has this thing to it is tattooed love voice but i was really terrified of fucking that song up live and so i i must have rehearsed that my poor neighbors i must have rehearsed that <laughs> 500 times before we played the show. And so we're sound checking and I did fuck it up. Oh no. Yes. But I recovered so quickly and it was the best thing that could have happened because it proved to myself that if I did fuck it up, I could get out. I could get back like in a second. Sure, sure, sure. And so I I would recommend fucking up to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you're doing, because it'll show you how you can get back in. Or you yeah. can get out of it, or it's not not that big a deal. So we we used to call it getting the suck out. You know, yes, that's exactly suck, it. Suck in practice so that you can hit that shit when you're Absolutely. live, like you know, perfectly. I think you know, I I I gotta. I know it feels like we've been talking for like five minutes, but it's been forty minutes already. So I just like there's a few things I really want to get to. Yes, go. We, we jump off, and you know, one of the things is uh, Bob Mould and. Um, so I was at the noise pop show at bottom of the hill when you guys played copper blue in its entirety. Yes. And um, I'm just going to say I've been to, as you can probably tell, probably thousands of shows at this point. I don't even know. I can't yeah. count because it's just ridiculous. Um, and it was probably the loudest show I've ever been to in my life. I would not doubt that. <laughs> um, the sound man that night is a guy named Paul Thomas, who was covering the board. He's the like the lead sound guy at Bottom of the Hill. Okay, known him forever. He let me stand in the sound booth for part of that set, and oh, wow. he, we were. I have a video of the needles on the board, and they're buried. And he's he looked at me at one point to check if, to see if I had earplugs in first, and yeah. then also between songs said, "This is the loudest show we've ever had at Bottom of the Hill." I and wonder. And it's was, not even close. Was anything coming th- coming through the PA except vocals? Just vocals. Wow. You guys didn't need much anything else. I mean, the guitar was so loud. Yeah. And the, the I mean, just everything on that stage just jumps anyway. Yeah. So it, it was just, it was incredibly loud. But 
the on the other side of it, it was also crystal clear. It was one right. of the best sounding shows I've ever been to because uh-huh. his Bob's. I've seen him play. I actually saw Sugar play, and mm-hmm. I've seen him play acoustic, and I've seen him with you a couple of times. Um, and his shit always sounds like it's like you know it's it's it sounds right. It's just good. Oh yeah. He's, he's a so, singular guy. Amazing. How, how is it playing with him? I mean, how, how, how did that even, you even get asked to do that? And how did you not freak out? Because I, uh, I printed the shirts for that show too. Cause right. I have a screen printing company and I dropped them off and it was just Bob standing at the bar. Yeah. And, uh, and Ramona was there that owns bottom of the hill yeah. and they're having a chat and they both turn and look at me and I know her. But he goes, oh, you must be Kevin, the merch guy. As soon as he said my name, I got like butterflies. And then I left and came back. I actually came back because I said, you know, I got to say this. I, I spent three years in, in high school in Michigan and Husker Du's music and your lyrics specifically saved my life when I was wow. there. And he was, yeah. you know what he said to me? Like completely straight faced. No. He said that hearing stuff like that never gets old. Thanks for telling me. Yeah. It's but amazing. Kevin, if you had kept your cool, he would have asked you to be in the band. <laughs> Never know. Never know. Yeah. So what? I yeah. mean, how did that come about? Because um, I, I first met. Like, I was always a massive Husker Du fan. Like, yeah. They were they were in my top 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 three when I was a teenager, and they probably still are. <laughs> but uh, um, my ex at the time, uh, Angie, and she, Angie was in uh, Let's Active for a long time. Okay. She ended up. This is. God, I don't know when this would have been. Probably early 2000s. She was a publicist for a label called Yep Rock. Okay. And they did one album with Bob uh, called um, uh, Something of Body of Song. Okay. And so I met Bob through her uh, at the record release show for, for that record. We went up, up to D.C. when he was living in there. He was living there to uh, go to this record release party. And I remember bringing up my, my uh, Zen Arcade and uh, flip your wig and he signed them. And um, uh, then I saw him play live at the Cat's Cradle on, a, on the, his first band solo tour since he stopped playing with the band. So right. we're talking, I don't know what this would have been. Oh, three, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But uh, Jason Narducci is the bass player in the band. Okay. Brendan Canty on drums from Fugazi and uh, Rich Morell on keyboards. And so uh, Jason and I soon after that end up being in Robert Pollard's band, right. the Ascended Masters. Uh, so we, we did about nine months of touring when Bob put his, when Pollard put his uh, solo records out on Merge Records. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm in the Mountain Goats by this point. Now we're up to like 07, 08, and uh, Mountain Goats are doing a tour of the U.S., and we have an Australian tour coming up, and uh, John has to cancel the tour for some reason, John Durniel. And we have two dates left, Philly and D.C., and in Philly, I get a call from Jason Narducci, who is now out with Bob Mould on a tour for his album called uh, District Line, Mm -hmm. and they're having problems with their drummer. And he goes, would you be willing to do this European tour that we have coming oh, wow. up with Bob. I said, absolutely. Cause I had nothing coming up. And then he calls the next day and he goes, would you be able to finish this tour? Oh, wow. Wow. And by chance we have one more show left with the mountain goes in, in uh, DC. And I say, 
I'm feeling lucky. Let's do it. And so I, I said, just send me what the songs are. I already knew a lot, most of the Husker Du songs. I knew a lot of this, you know, workbook songs from the solo records and that sort of thing. And, and I, I knew some sugar stuff. And uh, we finished the Mountain Goats tour. They, they dropped me back off here in Chapel Hill. I think I flew out to LA maybe that night or the next morning. And they picked me up and we drove down to uh, Solana Beach in uh, outside of San Diego. We sound checked and we played our first show that night. Wow. Wow. So it, I, it, there wasn't time to be nervous, nervous. about anything. Yeah. You but, son of a bitch, I'm in. Yeah. I'm, we're, we're doing this. And, and to this day, it's like Chuck Berry. I watch Bob's uh, right foot. Yeah. And when he stamps it, that means the song is going to end in a couple seconds. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, cool, yeah, amazing. Yeah. So he's got to tell he should not be a major league baseball p- pitcher, is what you're right. saying. Exactly. <laughs> they exactly. know when that fastball is coming. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. That's so funny. So uh, the other thing I wanted to get into was your your writing and acting mm-hmm. stuff because it, you know, you haven't been as active. It looks like you because you're playing in so many bands right now. Yeah. And w- what are your plans for that? I mean, I mean, I've I, I watched a couple recent interviews and listened to a couple recent interviews. Sounds like you're going to do a book at some point. Yeah. Um, th- I think so. Um, I think you should. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't really pursue the acting, but things will come up every now and then. Like I, I auditioned for uh, a role on Barry. Bill Hader thought I, I would be good uh, for this thing, and nice. I think I might have gotten it, but I couldn't do it because of the of the, of, of touring. Uh, oh. it was the, it, I, I don't know if, if <laughs> I you like saw. That show. It, I saw um, all of it. Yeah, all uh, of it. it's the guy who is the coffee shop owner. Uh, oh, in oh, the yeah, last yeah. season. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so I, I auditioned for that. And, and yeah, um, I could see that. That would have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah, yeah. things like that come up. I, I, I got asked to audition for the, uh, I guess there's some sort of animated Better Call Saul prequel. Oh, wow. Uh, that's coming up. Uh, I, I didn't get that, but. Uh, that's fun, what, though. What, yeah, what, about, so what about the like the writing stuff? Are you doing any writing for any shows or? T- uh, f- no, n- not lately. T- Tom and I, you know, I still do the best show every yeah. Tuesday night when I can. And that's like, that's like writing an episode of comedy every week. So, sure. so, uh, that sounds I, fun. I consider that a job too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's it's incredible that you guys are still doing that after still all these doing years. It. Too. Kevin, like, can I ask a stupid question? Just yeah. one stupid. We never, I never asked anyone a stupid yep. question yes. yet. Is Katy Perry cool? Because I just love her on American Idol. She was great. Uh, and I honestly didn't know a ton about her other than she had that song called I Kissed a Girl when we sure, did, sure. did this thing uh, at the MTV Movie Awards in 09, I think it was. And uh, she was great. Um, huh. Very, I mean, she she's... That's it. Say she, no more. Say no more. Yeah, she had the vibe <laughs> of a star even then. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so... Yeah. Uh, and I got to play with Joe Perry from Aerosmith on that little gig. Awesome. And oh, that's was, awesome. He was cool. So, yeah, it was just. I just saw that little blurb in Wikipedia and I was like, I got what's yeah. what's up with that? She was great. And, and I said, <laughs> she we met and she goes, you look familiar. And I just said. Oh, I've been I've been around. That was it, and, and, like, and we never we never talked again. But uh, <laughs> okay, that's a, that's yeah, a pretty cool. good comeback for somebody yeah. that's now, who's now as famous as she is. You, I've been around. Yeah. So what? What? Uh, that's not a dumb question, by the way, Pepper. Um, I, I if I had I noticed the Katy Perry thing, I would have asked too. I'm, I find her to be a very interesting, compelling character. Um, 
so what's what's on the horizon? What tours you got coming up? Tell us, give us all the rundown. We'll, we're going to throw links in the show and all that. Well, stuff, so. I'm not sure when this is airing, but I'm going to go out to LA on uh, Sunday, and we're going to do a 24 hour straight best show uh, next Tuesday. What? Uh, which will, I have no idea what it will be like, but it's it's going to be 24 hours straight. So, uh, uh, do you sleep anyway? I mean, is it? Do you get any time? I'm sure I can. Like- yeah, it's not going to be just me the whole time. Okay, so I'm going to, okay. I'll be, I'll be able to do that. But uh, Mountain Goats have a new album coming out. Um, awesome. In about a month, I think, and it's called Bleed Out. Okay. And uh, we're going to do a big tour for that starting the end of August, and um, that's the big thing. A couple more Super Chunk shows coming up. Um, big, big festival in Atlantic City in I think September 24th with Rocket from the Crip, 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 Crip. Um, oh, are you playing team. with them at that? I'm not playing with them, no. Uh, but um, are you playing with? Who shake, are you playing with? I shake a little tambourine. Uh, super chunk, <laughs> nice. Oh, yes. rad, oh, rad. That's a rad show. Yeah, that's a lineup I, right there. I yeah, think G- I think GBV's on that show too. I think. Holy crap! Yeah, you could do triple duty. I could. I could. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. So, what what do you do for yourself? Like when you're not, because this is obviously. You know, it seems like you love your job, but it is still work. I mean, how do you, how do you tell us before we go, tell us how you relax? Like, what is your thing? How do you, how do you kind of, I will, and- I will, um, I'll have a hit or two of weed mm-hmm. and then I watch, this is so weird right now. I'm really into, um, uh, interrogation videos, for like, <laughs> yeah, like police stuff. Sure. I, I, I'm, it's fascinating what people do and say when they're on the spot. I, yeah. I think that's it. Like I just, because I I've always had this uh, allergy to, to being in trouble. Sure. Mm-hmm. That like, it's just, I don't know. It, 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 I, I love just watching, see what people who are in incredible trouble do. That's great. You know, like, like the, the quick thinking they yeah, have yeah, to do. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's fascinating to me. So. That's all my wife. About me. <laughs> that's all my partner watches. So I get a lot of it in my ear. But yeah, um, it's fascinating yeah. stuff. There's <laughs> one called uh, "Signs of a Sociopath," I think, on HBO. Yes. That's a good one. Okay. Oh, now- and and body behavior experts. I love that. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you, know, you see them. Look how he's fidgeting. You know, he's yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Self-soothing. Like that's one. They're yeah. self-soothing. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Oh my god, that's so funny. Um, well, I just want to thank you. I, this was like as good or better than I expected. The, just thanks for coming with the stories and the energy and, you know, just being you and all the, all the, I mean, all the work you've done. And, you know, I think drummers oftentimes get such a bad rap having played drums in a lot of bands over the years. And, you know, you give us a really good name. So I want to, from, from other drummers, I just want <laughs> oh, to thank thanks. you as well. Yeah. You the know. drummer is always the wild card. Yeah. Always. I agree. Always. So, well, we, we appreciate having you on and, and when we're getting ready to air it, we'll send you some social media stuff if you do any of that stuff. So great. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It was great meeting you you. guys. Vacation 40 years old today. Wow. Okay. I'm putting it on as soon as we're done. (laughs) Go, go's vacation, everybody. All right. Both die.